Hello out there in podcast world. This is Renew Gurus, your source for all things energy policy and politics in Missouri and beyond. I'm Executive Director James Owen, uh, coming to you live on tape from the palatial Renew Missouri studios in beautiful Northern Columbia. I'm flying a little solo today. As you remember from our last podcast, Danielle Wilson is now uh, off to law school, so no longer our producer. Philip Frasica is here, but we've got a lot going on, so he's doing other work. But I do have uh, beaming from satellite to this podcast from St. Louis, Dr. Stephen McMillan from St. Louis University. Doctor, hello, <laughs> how are you? Very good, hello. Well, thanks for joining us. Um, I, I, I kind of want to get into your background and your experience, but you know, one of the things that is important uh, to, as an introduction to you and as an introduction to what uh, we are working on with you. Um, some of you might have seen uh, emails or webinars that we've been promoting talking about the connection between health and energy efficiency. Um, we have been doing that work, as, you, as a lot of our listeners know, our vast uh, listenership knows that uh, we are doing a lot of energy efficiency work uh, with the Public Service Commission. We're doing a lot of that work with local municipalities. We're trying to do that work with rural electric cooperatives. If you're a member owner of a rural electric cooperative, we have some big news that we're about ready to announce in September about that. Um, but, you know, one of the things that we're always trying to emphasize is the benefits of energy efficiency. It is obvious that uh, this is good for reducing our carbon footprint. Uh, if we're using less power, that's important. It's obvious that it's good for your utility bill because you're using less power, so therefore you're consuming less, so therefore you're having to pay your utility less. All that's good stuff. And Missouri's got some really good laws in place that allow utility companies to see financial benefit from doing energy efficiency. We like those laws. We think those laws are positive. Those have really helped us with our energy efficiency programs. But there is another important component, and this is what we've been focused on, and that's the component of public health. And whether or not energy efficiency can contribute in a positive way to that. So doctor, um, you know, kind of, kind of give us a little bit of background about why this matters to you or why you focus on this kind of thing. Sure, so again, uh, my name is Stephen Edward McMillan. I'm an associate professor of social work and epidemiology at St. Louis University. And uh, really my um, uh, entree into this kind of work, most of my research uh, historically and currently focuses on innovation and entrepreneurship. And increasingly my main focus now has been environmental innovation and entrepreneurship. And uh, this reflects uh, changes in the fields of social work and public health. Uh, to relatively recently. Uh, so in, within social work in 2015, uh, they we did a revision of what the core competencies of a social worker are. So those, you know, you know, list of 10 or fewer things that every social worker should be able to do. And in 2015, environmental justice was added to the, the advocacy work social workers were expected to be able to do in terms of advancing human rights, social, economic, and environmental justice. Uh, so this idea that just this is a basic part of social work, we want social workers to be able to do this, 
in part because also in 2015, the Academy of Social Work and Social Welfare launched a Grand Challenges initiative. And, uh, you know, I think we hear this term Grand Challenges. Uh, what are Grand Challenges? They're wicked problems. They're problems where the solution is hard to figure out. A lot of solutions might cause other problems. But what can we do in the next decade to try to get a handle on these pervasive, wicked problems? And uh, the Academy of Social Work and Social Welfare uh, said that creating social responses to a changing environment were a grand challenge. So, so this has been kind of a call for action for social work, public health, allied professions that rely on social interaction, social change, and social cause promotion to get people more excited about healthy living and how to really kind of live our best lives in this context of increased health concerns and what can environmental interactions and environmental efforts do to help with that. Now, I, and I know it's, it's, it's kind of like a phrase of art, and I know it's a term that gets thrown around a lot. And I, I think, you know, it's important for me trying to educate people about what, what is it when we say environmental justice? I mean, what is it that you're trying to accomplish when you use that term or you're talking about that phrase? I mean, what, what do you want people to, to think about when they hear environmental justice? Sure, it, it's, a, it's a term that um, I'm a little careful with because I think it, it's, you know, uh, for, for social work and public health and a lot of social sciences and universities, it ties into social justice. And social justice is one of these concepts that is also kind of a buzzword. It also raises alarm as much as it, you know, gets people enthused about it. So I'm a little careful with these terms, but the idea for me when I talk about justice of any kind is what is basic fairness that should be available to all people. And so the environment, you know, it's the, it's the ultimate free rider problem. We all breathe air. We all have to get around on the surface of the earth. What's fair for everyone in terms of making it safe to breathe air, stay warm, stay cool when you got to stay cool, and get around uh, together in the context of community and society? What's basic fairness for everyone that optimizes health and optimizes our ability to live our best lives, to all make a, a reach for the good life? Um, as we do in society and in community? And how can my ability to grow in that way uh, promote and not hurt other people's chances to live their best lives too? Yeah, and so one of the things I, I, I think is important for me to, and when I think about all this is, in, you know, and I guess we're gonna go to some philosophical <laughs> discussions about this, but that's kind of why we're here. Like when I think about like justice and I think about like if you are poor, you're low, you're low income, you're a minority. I mean, there are overlaps between, you know, you see a lot of uh, more instances of lower income households and minority populations. Is there, when you're talking about environmental justice versus just regular issues for people, when you're talking about regular issues like inaccessibility to education, inaccessibility to healthcare, inaccessibility to, uh, to being able to get good wages, I mean, do you see a distinction? Is there, are there distinguishing factors between that kind of justice and environmental justice, or do you see that they're usually connected with each other? You know, I think they certainly are uh, connected in the sense that uh, uh, I use...
you know, within epidemiology, within a lot of uh, social science, we really try to be informed by a life force perspective. You know, we all have one body and one life, and we, we change developmentally throughout our lives. So, right. uh, you know, pregnant women, babies, children are differentially at risk depending on environmental context. Meaning if you are growing up in a home that has molds, that has, you know, leaking water, that has all these other problems, you know, while you're still a baby who can't, uh, you know, do a lot for yourself, you're at a, a real disadvantage that will affect you. So, you know, we see yeah all these kids being diagnosed with asthma, being diagnosed, or, or also just having high risk factors. You know, when we say risk factors, we are, we're using this life course perspective to say at risk for what? Well, usually in the case of health and environment, it's very clear. You're at risk for a diagnosis of asthma. You're right. at risk for spending a lot of time, money, energy, and resources going to the emergency room of your local hospital over and over and over. And who pays for that? Society pays for that to a great right. extent. You know, it's not like, it's not like people um, do this and there are no societal or community consequences. Every, every pregnant woman, every baby, every child that's differentially impacted, you know, that disparities are hurting them in terms of their ability to stay healthy in a poor environment or in a pressured environment. There are true societal costs for that that we all pay for, and it's suboptimal. It's not good for individuals or communities or societies when we let our weakest link break, you know, that by not addressing this and taking care of this, we all waste time, money, resources. We all experience uh, pain and disadvantage when we allow the weakest link to break. Right. And, uh, you know, and I, and I think that's, I think that's absolutely right. And I, and I think there's also like, there's a distinguishing factor between external popular, your external environment versus your internal environment. Like, I know when you look at research out there, there's a tendency for people who are poor, people who are in a minority population to live near a, a, a energy plant, a, a coal burning plant. Um, and so that's, that, that's, that's, that's research that's out there. But there's also research out there in regards to if you are poor, if you are in a minority population, if those things overlap, that there's going to be impacts that you have on your internal environment, where you live, where you work. I mean, are those different? Do you find that those are different or do you think those are all, those go hand in hand too? Yeah, I think they are there. They are interconnected and they're also often cumulative. So having a, a constellation of risk factors increases the consequences of of high risk that, you know, when you are, uh, you know, living next to a coal plant, it affects other things in your life. And so when a, a bad outcome is triggered, it can almost metastasize and get worse and worse over time. And, you know, the interesting thing about epidemiological research connected to social context research and environmental research is that we see this uh, throughout time, throughout history, and in a lot of different places. So, you know, here in the U.S. context, you mentioned of living next to a coal plant, which certainly, you know, there's a robust empirical evidence that that's right. risky in a lot of ways. It produces specific negative health, health outcomes. Um, in some of the research I do with uh, my, my different uh, epidemiology collaborators, you know, we look at uh, samples and populations 
homes in China that are still using coal heating indoors. So they're cooking on coal, they're heating oh, their wow. homes with coal, and they're getting a lot more exposure. And you know, we know historically, uh, burning coal in a home hopefully was a hundred or more years ago for most of our context. Right. Um, but so we can see. I mean, we have historical evidence, and we just have robust empirical evidence of of what's bad and what's risky and what doesn't work. And also we have all this developmental evidence that at different areas uh, and, and spaces of the life course, children are at risk, pregnant women are at risk, elders are at risk. You know, we, we can really pretty accurately and pretty confidently predict really bad things when we don't address these problems. Doesn't it seem like when you're, when you're talking about living in near a, living near a coal plant versus, you know, just having an inefficient home, doesn't it seem like it's like the, the, the risk factors and the cause of this is more obvious. Is it, I mean, cause I, you know, one thing I've noticed is there is a lot of research out there in regards to the health consequences of outdoor pollution, but there isn't as much about indoor pollution. And you think it's just because it's, it's just harder to quantify. Do you think it's just harder to research? Are there too many other variables? To, yeah. Sorry. What, what do you, what do you think uh, that is? I, you know, I think it can be harder to access. So, you know, in a lot of the, the social and community meetings we have on these issues, um, you know, I think presenters do a really nice job of, of showing these kind of dramatic photographs of, of what could be lurking under your sink in your kitchen, right. you know, what can be lurking in the walls of your home, because we don't see it, you know, the, the, the buildings and the homes that we live in, for the most part, it's easy to have this cosmetic appearance that looks good. But if you have mold, if you have, you know, heat loss, if you have other things coming in that you can't see, uh, it's, it's harder to capture and harder to stay on top of. However, it's still bad, you know, and it's, it's, it's right. that, that kind of exposure um, the more we have intervention and good kind of health-focused surveillance and, and, and prevention services, the more likely we are to be able to capture some of this as well. Right. So, I mean, so you, you talk about these connections, you talk about this nexus. Um, I mean, I know that obviously the, the focus of our work over the past several months has been looking at how energy efficiency programs being offered by some of our utilities can assist with that. I mean, do you, I mean, do you think, I mean, like what, I mean, do you, what do you, I mean, what do you see as a barrier between, you know, you're talking about social work you're talking about environmental justice. I mean, what do you think of the barrier is, do you think people in social work understand this concept? Do you think it's just, they're overwhelmed by other problems that they're, that the people that they serve are facing? I mean, what do you think the, the challenges there are in trying to make these connections? So I, I think there's a, a few challenges. One is that even though social work and public health have a, a good long history of doing home-based assistance, home-based kind of surveillance inspection, um, you know, home-based help basically, like, you know, public health and social work professionals going to people's homes to offer help is a, is a part of the history of public health and social work. However, it's also, you know, associated with bad things. So kind of the, the bad stereotype of social work is I'm going to come to your house and I'm going to leave with your kids, you know, and, right. um, <clears throat> and that, that stereotype is, is tough to get around. And also there were, you know, in my office on campus, I have a, a research I studied that, you know, kind of the bad old days, which unfortunately were not that long ago, you know, longer than I've been alive, but, but not by much, when, uh, you know, 
the part of the job of social work and sometimes public health was to come into your house and inspect your house in a way that was not particularly engaging. You know, you had right. the, the social worker with the clipboard, you know, uh, looking to see if you made your bed, looking to see what you had in your refrigerator. So again, these, these bad histories were a small part of the work, but, but loomed large enough that people sometimes have a reaction to them. At the same time, I think that even though social work and public health as professions have improved so much and, you know, you're not going to find social workers and public health workers with clipboards trying to get people in trouble anymore. Um, it is harder because we do a lot of different kinds of work and we're also very often more institutionally based. So often if I'm a social worker or a health worker going into someone's home, I'm going in for a specific purpose and I'm not trying to alarm or alienate the people I'm visiting because I'm a guest in their home. I'm trying to help them with one thing. So, and that's a, that's kind of a re-education for professionals, paraprofessionals, anyone doing this kind of work that if I'm going into your home because I'm afraid you're, you're an elderly person who's a fall risk and you're going to keep okay. falling and have to go back into the hospital, I can look for other things than just that. I can look at signs that your house might not be safe environmentally and uh, that you might be in other kinds of risk, even though I'm primarily worried you're going to trip and fall. Like that idea of being holistic and comprehensive without reverting to the battle days of inspecting things with the clipboard. But that realizing we can do more and that it's a, it's, it's a value added overall when home-based workers are well-trained to consider environmental issues and kind of take the blinders off and are able to look more comprehensively and holistically at a home environment, including energy and environment. Yeah, because I mean, and, and this is a this is kind of just my observation. You know, looking at this before I did work with Renew Missouri, I, I was a, a probate lawyer. I did a lot of work with public administrator offices. My experience with social workers are kind of like what you were talking about—the people that go into a home of an elderly person or a person who might have issues in capacity and whether they're safe. And you know, that's, that's so the idea of the person with the clipboard is kind of what my experience is in, in seeing this, but. You know, when you talk about social workers and you talk about whether it's, you know, clinical base or in an office or in someone's home, I mean, the core component is, and correct me if I'm wrong, the core component is trying to get them to interact with other people and trying to understand, like, what might be wrong, what might be right, what might need to be fixed. And they're not trained to look at what's around you necessarily. Am I, am I off base with that? Well, so, you know, it's interesting. I was talking about how um, the environment is now considered a, a core competency for social work. Most of the, the core competencies for social work, when we describe what social workers do, we, we fall back on four functions or actions, and that's engage, assess, intervene, and evaluate. So the bad old days of just marching into your house and inspecting it without engaging you, without reassuring you that I'm trying to help you, bad. But assessment, I think, is a broad category, and I can assess comprehensively and holistically. The, the challenge, I think, sometimes is training and retraining and continuing education to um, you know, let um, young professionals and seasoned professionals um, understand that they can do more. So uh, one thing I like to do, I like to show uh, different, you know, videos and photos of, of what a home-based assessment by a social worker or a health worker might look like. And, you know, very often you'll see, oh, well, this is what the social worker is probably focused on, but I'm looking at the rust on the radiator and wondering, is there a leak in that radiator? What else is going on in terms of energy efficiency in that phone? 
home. You know, I'm wondering, oh, those windows don't have a window covering on them. How hot does it get in August? Uh, you know, that there are other things you can look for once you've been primed and educated to look for them. And it's only going to help the family, the clients, the patients, the person you're trying to help. You know, it's we're not reverting to the battle days of getting into your business in every area, but environments and home-based, um, uh, you know, home-based services that are really conscious of energy and environments are actually pretty easy to do. It's really just getting the word out and get it, letting people get to know a little bit more to feel more confident about doing it. Yeah, because, you know, because I think that what you and I are working on and what we're trying to convey to people is it's not just like, oh, we're trying to train you to look at like what is energy efficient and what isn't. I mean, most of this is, you know, once you fix, this can be used to fix other problems in someone's home. This is something that can make your home safer. Uh, you know, if you've got, you know, you know, old appliances that might be a, uh, a, a risk of like, you know, being an electric shortage, you're going to replace that with something more efficient. I mean, I, you know, I see a lot of what we're talking about with energy efficiency and a lot of what we're talking about connecting to health is almost like indirect. I don't want to minimize what I'm doing, <laughs> sure. but I think that's what we're trying to emphasize here. Oh yeah. And also that, you know, again, uh, the field of, health and social services has changed and grown very recently. You know, one big incentive for health and social service providers to get more involved in this work is the change in accountability and the change in funding structures where very often now what brings a social worker or a healthcare worker to someone's home, it's the fear that we're discharging them from our health system or from our hospital. And if they come right back into the hospital, our funding sources are going to pay us less because that's considered a, a red flag, a sign that we did not prepare that patient well enough to really be able to go back home. So for financial reasons, a lot of providers, a lot of healthcare systems and social service systems are really, it's into their best interest financially to make sure that clients, patients, people they're trying to help get good help because if they boomerang and come right back into services, into care, you're, they're not going to get paid as much for providing care. And it's just an inefficiency that we really want to work on removing from the system as much as possible. So doing it right the first time and being really careful and thorough and comprehensive is a win-win all around. Right. And so how do you think, I mean, from a practical standpoint, I mean, we obviously know kind of from research and from trying to, you know, how we're training people that this is important, but how do you put that into effect? How do you like make that practically? How do you, how do you train people on this? I mean, how do you talk to them about where they should go? What resources you should be looking at? I mean, what, what, what is the, what is the, uh, what is that aspect of like implementing this? So I think a lot of it, uh, uh, this within public health and in public health, historically has done this well, it's always a challenge, that kind of social marketing and health marketing. Uh, and uh, I'm a, a big uh, believer and uh, researcher on uh, behavioral science, behavioral economics, you know, this idea of nudging. How do I make the best choice, the easy choice, and get the word out there for people that, you know, uh, the, 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 the safest, healthiest, easiest choice uh, you know, should, you know, should be the norm? And how can we reset systems so that I'm not struggling against 
the safest, healthiest, best choice being the easiest choice. You know, we make a lot of choices in life. Every choice comes in a menu. How can we make sure that that menu makes it easier for people to find out more and to do, you know, the, to make the, you know, again, that best practice, the easiest thing. So I think basic healthcare social marketing is um, important, getting messages out that way. I think right. using multiple platforms, you know, podcasts, social media, um, you know, bringing it in that way. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think that's a part of it. And, you know, uh, again, I'm, I'm going back a few decades. You know, it used to be when you drove around interstates in the Midwest, you would see billboards on the interstates and, you know, the public health local counties, local health departments would pay to put up a public health message on that billboard as you're driving through because that was the way to reach people. That's still a way to reach people. We have so many other ways now in terms of, you know, social media, just general kind of priming menus and making it easier for people to choose the healthiest, safest, most efficient energy outcome. So it's a re-education and it's also just consciousness among providers and people who do this work to always get the message out. You know, and I think it's important for academics and scientists like me to be part of these community information efforts too. You know, I uh, try to publish a lot. That's part of what my university expects. It's what my field expects. Right. But by being able to, uh, you know, get the message out across platforms, I want scientists to read my work because I'm a scientist, but I want everyone to know what best practices are in terms of home-based energy and environment, because that's what's going to produce the best lives for most people. You bring up something interesting too. You talk about uh, the ability to communicate this to the public. I mean, you know, isn't one thing you can say about social services, social work is that people working in that field and those kind of areas have seen significant budget cuts recently. I mean, we don't, we don't, I mean, do you, I mean, we're not really investing in that as much as we used to. Doesn't that make that harder? That's like an easy question. I'm trying to get to a larger point, but. Yeah. Do you know, it, it's, it's, I think it's tough in some ways, especially when, when we want to be close to the ground. We want to actually help people in their homes, help people stay out of hospitals beyond what they, what they need. Uh, I think the good news for employment is, you know, that the more we become knowledge workers and we use, you know, media like this, we use technology and tools, um, we maintain infrastructure. And I think that's important. I think that one of the toughest things about COVID COVID-19, you know, for going on almost half a year now, is that it's harder to launch and relaunch those more on the ground uh, settings. And also, uh, we do experience, you know, different levels of funding ebb and flow, you know, um, uh, and there's been some policy intervention to try to help with that. But it is, we're in a tough place financially where um, a lot of jurisdictions, a lot of providers have less revenue, which means they're retrenching somewhat more too. And they're having to be really thoughtful about the kind of work they do, when, where, and how. And that's what I worry about the most is how do we make sure that social workers and health workers can get out into communities, out into neighborhoods, out into people's homes to the extent that we can help keep people in their homes safely and with you know, the best optimal health for them. Jurisdictions having issues like that, like Missouri. <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, I know probably people have been, you know, if they're listening to this, they probably wonder when this is going to be brought up and you kind of brought it up and I kind of buried the lead. You mentioned uh, COVID-19. You're, you're talking about epidemiology. You talk about social work. You talk about people's interactions. I mean, 
you touched on this and I kind of want to save it to the end because I did not want this necessarily to be the focus of this, but it's gotta be a focus right now. Mm -hmm. I mean, what, I mean, so like, how are we adjusting to this? How is social work adjusting to this right now? What, what steps are they taking to be able to make sure people are safe and healthy mm -hmm. and, and you know, kind yeah. of functioning? And, and that's the, the tough thing. Cause I do, I think the good thing for most people in most places is that uh, we're not saying it wasn't that long ago, you know, 12, 11, 10 years ago, the Great Recession. And, you know, in the, in the Great right. Recession, the funding and jurisdictional issues were such where programs, agencies closed within a matter of months and sometimes weeks. I mean, it was just, right. we're suspended. We have no money. We're not doing anything. Um, this time around, we're in a little bit better shape. You know, there's the payroll protection program, different nonprofits and different groups have been able to get different kinds of loans and assistance to keep going. We're obviously in a very precarious uh, place in terms of what happens next for that. But I, I will say the good thing is we've preserved a lot of infrastructure. The, the risky thing is there are risks and we don't know what comes next because we're already at this point where our spending is getting so high that there's going to be uh, pushback and pullback likely coming on, on some of it. So what can we do to preserve infrastructure for having a, a secure safety net, a secure health and social service safety net that doesn't let people slip through the cracks. And then I would go back to this idea that as much as possible when it's safe to do so, we really want uh, public health and social work to be community, neighborhood, home adjacent. We want people meeting real people where they are and helping them stay healthy where they are. Yeah. Yeah, because I mean, I, you've talked to law enforcement, I know, and I'm, I'm sure that you probably talked to people in social work about this. I, I have a, another job where I kind of talk to law enforcement more, but they'll tell you right now, most of their calls are domestic abuse and elder abuse and things like that, because people are inside. Oh, yeah. yeah. So you're, uh, that's the nice thing about being a professor is I'll, I'll give a lecture to my students and I'll actually remember it later. So one of the things I, I started off my fall classes with this year was kind of taking stock on where we were in terms of COVID-19 and just the broad right. field of public health and social work. And so the best estimates I've seen fairly recently are that there's been approximately a 6% increase, about 24,000 additional cases of domestic violence in wow. this past year. And it's because of this, you know, uh, uh, perfect storm of events of, yeah. of, you know, people in tough or, or precarious relationships, more dependent on each other, more time with each other. And uh, it is. So domestic violence is a great example, too. And we have other kind of, uh, you know, social currents running through society that bring a lot of challenges as well. Uh, you see a lot of memes about 2020, and it is, a, it's been a tough year in a lot of ways. Yeah. And, and I mean, you know, when you think about energy efficiency, I mean, the one thing I talk to energy efficiency contractors, you talk to people who are professionals of this at the utility companies, they are limited with what they can do. And, and they are limited with, you know, who they can send into your home. Uh, you know, whether they can do audits, because that's, a, that's a big thing. That is literally where someone comes in with a, with a with a <laughs> with a clipboard and kind of examines your home but that's a challenge right now and um, people don't feel safe doing that i think there's good reason they should not feel safe doing that yeah. and you know and also i think and we're going to get into this in some uh, subsequent podcasts as we kind of start focusing on this as a subject but like because people are having financial trouble because they are having trouble paying their electricity bills 
you are starting, you are going to see a larger problem with not only uh, just energy, uh, you know, the interaction between energy utility and energy customer, but also with how, you know, is their home, is there, is their living arrangement deteriorating right now? Absolutely. And that's, you know, one of the, the again, the, the demographic kind of financial, social domains that we look at is we already know for the low income people, for people who are already uh, poor under great financial pressure or just under a lot of precarity where you can kind of feel middle class one minute and then kind of lose everything a month later because that's how precarious yeah. um, existence can be. So we know that there are already, and by some estimates, it's 150,000 households just in the greater St. Louis area of people who are just very precarious in terms of housing, uh, that they're already, for their normal way of life, has been to make trade-offs between paying my utility bill, paying my rent, paying this bill, paying that bill. So if that was your normal way of life pre-COVID-19, and now you're laid off, now you're not getting supplemental unemployment, now you're not getting, you know, different boosts in different ways that have helped you in the past, now you're in an even, even rougher situation where, you know, uh, I, I, what a reporter called it, a tidal wave of coming, you know, disconnections. It's going to lead right. to aftershocks. And um, the other thing, so these are real people, and I think it's always important to kind of recognize 150,000 families experience this is real people, real pain. And I think we need to acknowledge that. At the same time, trying to you know, be innovative and entrepreneurial and looking ahead, I worry a lot too about slowing down innovation and not making, you know, not continuing on the good path we were on in so many ways in terms of, you know, energy efficiency, uh, home efficiency, you know, really strengthening and securing people's ability to be healthy in their homes, that we don't want to lose momentum. And anytime you have these kind of cumulative shocks, it becomes tougher to maintain momentum as a field and as kind of an interest group of people of goodwill working for safe homes, healthy homes, energy efficiency. Yeah, but I mean, right now you talk about uh, innovation, I mean, you know, but the, the focus is got to be like, how are we going to make sure people don't go broke, lose their house? Uh, I mean, I know that a, a statistic that I used to talk about a lot when I was in public council, when I was at the consumer advocate for the state, you know, uh, electricity bills, utility bills, were the second highest uh, reason for homelessness. Uh, I mean, behind, you know, mortgage payments, that sort of thing, rent payments. Mm -hmm. Number two, I mean, so <clears throat> it, it is it is a substantial concern because we are having people that are now not seeing the PPP protections. They're not seeing some of the uh, moratoriums that had been put in place initially. Mm -hmm. And I'm probably bringing all that. Well, we're talking about this, but I'm bringing it all up because right now, Renew Missouri is really uh, engaged with Spire, Evergy, we're working on some cases involving their response and their financial situation with COVID and trying to get those consumer protections in place. Something real world stuff we're trying to work on right now um, that is gonna to try to bring some relief because I think this, is, this has the potential to be a real catastrophe. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I, and I think that's an important reminder to all of us when we talk about energy policy, health policy, social policy, we need to be agile, we need to be able to pivot. And uh, to the extent that we're not, we, we can let a catastrophe grow in our midst in a way that 
doesn't make sense at all. Because again, we as a society, we as a community, we pay for all of this financially and in terms of capacity and you know our own our, all of our futures are intertwined and if we again if we let the those who are struggling the most fall through the cracks the cracks just get bigger and we really as a society want to do as much as we can to be quick and responsive and to seal cracks not let cracks grow and grow. Uh, and I think that that is something that's really important that now is the time to be agile and to pivot to areas of greatest need very quickly, because again, that the, the bill comes due and we all will pay it. So let's do what we can now to reduce human misery, help people get back on their feet, stay on their feet, and it helps ourselves in the long run. It is. A, I mean, and this is just coming from someone that I, you know, I, I'm my undergraduate in economics, but, you know, the real failure of not looking at costs that aren't directly tied to like something to pay for with money. And there are costs out there that we, that, you know, that we don't see that are indirect, that don't, that do end up coming out of our pocket. We just don't know how that works. Mm -hmm. And so this is like what you and I are talking about, what we're trying to address and what we're trying to, you know, reveal to people are these, unseen indirect costs. I mean, there are real people here, but this is something that at a public level, we have to be worried about. Yeah, absolutely, and, I, and I, I'm glad that you mentioned it because I think some of these like, uh, you know, family math statistics are so important. I think for most families out there, when you look at your bill, you the things that pop to you are your, your housing payment, whether that's a mortgage or rent, and probably, especially in August in Missouri, your, your utility payment. What are you paying for energy? How much energy are you using? How big is that bill getting? And you know, again, if you're a pressured family that's making lots of tough choices, how are you juggling that? And if you're not able to juggle anymore, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a serious consequence and it really points to catastrophe. So you mentioned some of the risk factors, you know, not being able to pay a utility bill, huge risk factor for, uh, uh, you know, losing your home, becoming homeless, losing your home, becoming homeless, huge risk factor for losing your job or your ability to have any kind of job, you know. So these kind of interconnected risk factors produce cumulative disaster if we don't work really hard to shore up each end. It's kind of, you know, we want to make sure, again, don't let anybody fall through the cracks and don't let any one crack become the Grand Canyon because when we do, we just create bigger problems, you know, so those are, it's really interconnected and it's really important for those of us doing this work to get that message out that energy efficiency and energy cost is crucial to your typical average family. I'd like to leave it on that note, but I kind of want to know, do you have anything that you look at this crisis right now, you look at the situation right now from your research and from your work with your, with your students that you feel hopeful about? Oh, do you know what I do? Like I said, I, the one thing, and I'm really kind of um, uh, clinging to this a little bit, just that we we haven't seen the the bottom of the roller coaster that we saw a dozen years ago in the Great Recession, where so many health and social programs just shut their doors and just yeah. didn't come back, you know, or they came back when a benefactor gave them a million dollars, but otherwise, you know, if you didn't win yeah. the lottery or a near equivalent, you just didn't come back. You know, I think we've done a better job this time around of preserving infrastructure. I think we need to continue to do that. We need to do everything possible to preserve infrastructure, but also um, now that we've done that, keep people engaged, kind of keep people 
uh, working as much as possible, keep people in healthy, safe homes as much as possible, and to be really focused um, on that, I think, will help us get through this. You know, I'm, I'm fairly optimistic we will get through this, you know. In terms of COVID-19, you know, it took us a while to find our footing on messaging, but, you know, wear your mask, <laughs> wear your mask. I, it's funny here in St. Louis, we did such a great job 100 years ago with the influenza epidemic. Yeah. And you see those photos, uh, those early photos of, you know, the, the ladies in their bonnets with their mask right. from 100 years ago. Like, we don't wear the bonnets anymore. We still need to wear the masks, you know, so just yeah. getting that core public health messaging out there is going to be what gets us through COVID-19 and just, you know, these good practices. I think we're all more attuned to, uh, you know, in-home sanitation, healthcare, you know, that we're, we're very focused on staying clean and, and neat. And um, that's only going to be good for a healthy, safe home. And that's only going to keep people healthy so that as the economy comes back, we come back to more and more opportunity where people are in a safe, healthy home that they can afford, they have utility bills that they can afford, and they see you know, job opportunities and community opportunities that are just gonna improve social life all around. We're gonna keep working on it. <laughs> gonna get that word out. <clears throat> and okay. we thank you, Dr. McGillan, for all you do and for your time. So thanks for being on here. My pleasure, thank you. Yeah, uh, so this has been Renew Gurus. If you like what you've heard, share it on your social media platforms. Write a positive review. Subscribe to us on Spotify or iTunes or any of the other major platforms where you can find podcasts. Uh, once again, this has um, been Dr. Stephen McMillan. We've been working on our health and energy efficiency um, program. We will be having another um, webinar. I guess I'll make this announcement on uh, September 25th, that's a Friday from noon to one. If you've missed some of our others, I think we've done four at this point, uh, but this will be our fifth one. And we're actually gonna be doing this in conjunction with Consumer Council of Missouri. Uh, they'll be on there uh, talking about uh, the impacts of disconnections, especially on people who um, have medical equipment in their homes. So um, that's really important. So once we get that information out there, we'll be sharing it with you. Uh, this is again, this is James Owen, Renew Missouri with Renew Gurus. Thanks for your time, and we'll see you next time on the radio.